Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you give us grace in this time as we continue to glean from the wisdom of your servant Solomon. We pray that we would learn these eternal, immutable foundations for wisdom. We pray that we would learn them well and that we would apply them well by the power of your Spirit. Lord, we pray for a movement of the Spirit in this time. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Last time I was with you, I began a many-week-long series through Proverbs on biblical sex roles vis-a-vis Solomon's wisdom in the book of Proverbs. We focused then on three essential elements that undergird all of the wisdom that we will study in this series, and these were the necessity of the abundance of counselors as the essential means of enabling repentance, uh, that work of discipleship, of bringing people into genuine repentance is too heavy a lift for one man. And so we took Solomon's writings, we compared them to Paul's, each one speaking truth to his neighbor. It has to be coming from multiple voices, and this is true for many reasons, and we went through that. We also recognized the necessity of observational social, sociological learning as consistent with the example of Solomon. I recall saying to you something along the lines of, we must learn from the school of hard knocks, but we don't always have to learn from it personally. Solomon is saying over and over again, I watched, I looked, I listened. And he gleaned from examples of a negative kind and a positive kind alike, what to do and what not to do as a result of watching, and we should learn the same way. But we do that, of course, through the lens of a biblical worldview. And then finally, I brought to you the primary necessity for honoring God-given sex roles vis-a-vis Proverbs is the accurate reflection of God's image by we, his image bearers. This is really the whole game. Okay, this is the reason why it matters so much. Yes, you will cause destruction of a temporal kind and a spiritual kind upon your children and your coming generations if you do not correct these things, but you have been made in the image of God, and whether you reflect that image in a way that glorifies him depends upon your obedience to him with respect to these things. Whether you are the kind of man that he's created you to be or woman that he has created you to be or not. So in this sermon, we're still not going to be primarily dealing with the behavioral nitty-gritty. We're going to get there. But I'm going to give you what I believe to be Solomon's four pillars 
of wisdom. Truth be told, I started to separate different uh, aspects of his teaching, and I realized that there were going to be about 18 points in one sermon, which is more than even I am willing to do. But then I did start to differentiate categories, and I realized there were two primary categories, actions, which accounted for most of my points, and attributes, which accounted for four of them. Like I say, these attributes then are to be thought of as pillars. And as such, that means that you and I are not so much to be wise in terms of our doing, but rather, first and foremost, we are to be wise in response to our natures. As Christians, our natures are defined by Christ. We were born the first time with a nature consistent with our first father, Adam. We were born again with a nature consistent with a second Adam, who is Jesus. And this order of nature preceding action is definitional of the Christian faith. You've heard me say many times, for us, being always precedes doing. So who you are matters more than what you do. But should a man in any state be concerned to obey God's law or those mandates, those commands? Absolutely. There are temporal consequences personally and societally for violating God's law. Also, you're clearly responsible to obey God's law per the commands of Scripture. So yes, in any circumstance, it is beneficial to obey the law of God. But a man should be much more concerned to have the law of God written on his heart through repentance and faith in Jesus and to have had the law of God perfected on his behalf by Jesus. And in terms of the law of God as applied by Solomon to humanity, which we are now learning of, the only perfect proverbial person is Christ. Solomon obviously wrote very, very well of wisdom, but my, did he write of it better than he actually ended up living it. Only Jesus perfectly applied Solomon's wisdom because, as we will see later, Jesus was in fact the source of Solomon's wisdom. So as a consequence of faith, our natures have been changed by the second birth and our actions reflect that and then we are truly enabled to become law keepers. My ordering of these four pillars of wisdom, as I am calling them, reflects this primary reality of our faith, i.e., that before new behavior must come new nature. And so this means taking a few steps back from a more concerted focus on sex roles. We will still be dealing with these, but we will also be dealing with the eternal immutable principles of wisdom that these rest on. And indeed, that will be much more our focus So with that, the first essential pillar for being a person of godly wisdom is humility. Point number one, the proverbial person is humble. Now, wisdom, as Solomon has it, is about hearing, it's about heeding. But hearing and heeding necessitates a recognition that you've not already heard enough, that you need to be taught, that you are not a fount of all wisdom. You must seek it elsewhere. This is step number one when it comes to being wise. And this is why humility is such a theme in Proverbs. Chapter 15, verse 33 says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. Chapter 22, verse 4, The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Chapter 27, 1 through 2, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Let another praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips, i.e. be humble. And not only are the humble positively affirmed by Solomon, the prideful 
are denounced. Proverbs 30, verse 32, if you have been foolish in exalting yourself or if you have plotted evil, put your hand on your mouth. Kind of similar to the put a knife to your neck, as he says elsewhere, if you're a glutton. Take extreme physical action in order to prevent that foolishness from escaping your mouth. It is such an issue. Chapter 26, verse 12, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Chapter 29, verse 1, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. 1525, the Lord will tear down the house of the proud. It will be a divine action. It will be God doing it. Chapter 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before, and everyone knows this, stumbling. Chapter 21, verse 24, proud, haughty, scoffer are his names, who acts with insolent pride. And to sum it all up, chapter 3, verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. So clearly only the humble person can become wise. And in fact, not only is humility necessary to become wise, humility is its own kind of wisdom. And it is actually the greatest kind of wisdom. Humility is the gateway through which a man or woman must pass in order to receive the wisdom of being a better Christian husband or wife, father or mother, church member. Even, by the way, in order to be financially successful in a secular field, you have to be humble. So succinctly, if it is wisdom, it came from and by humility. You can ask Solomon himself, who asked the Lord for wisdom. Why did he make that request? Because he knew that if he got wisdom everything else would be open to him. And so instead of, you know, wishing for more wishes, like God was some kind of a genie, and we've read about and seen depicted in movies, in response to the Lord's offer to give him whatever he asked for, Solomon, in his humility, requested the singular key to it all, and that was wisdom. Understand that the man whose wisdom we now glean from came to acquire it by first acknowledging to the Lord in 1 Kings 3, that he needed the Lord's knowledge because he was only a little child who essentially did not know how to govern. That's a great expression of humility. And it is from this that grew the gift of unparalleled wisdom. Humility as prerequisite for success of any kind whatsoever is as axiomatic as gravity pulls things down. This is an immutable law. It's not just binding on Christians. It's binding on everybody. It's written into the reality of the human condition. It is inescapable and unavoidable. But if you're really thinking here, you might offer to me an easily anticipated objection to the necessity of humility for success of any kind. You might say, well, you know, I've known lots of successful people who are prideful and boastful. And so you may say that on this basis I've been proven wrong by this bragger or another. Well, people like this do indeed exist. And indeed, in one sense, people like this are not humble. But in another sense, and the essential sense, they still very much can be. Because bragging is what you tell others about yourself. And it's sometimes what you tell yourself about yourself, but it is not always what you tell yourself about yourself. So the critical issue here is whether you believe yourself praise or if you're just saying these things because you want other people to believe them. Because if you believe it personally, then you are doomed. You will be unsuccessful. And I point you in the direction of any singing competition you have ever watched. 
And you get that person in there who's been told that they really can sing by their parents, and then they have three professionals tell them that they really, really cannot sing, and they will not listen, and they go on to continue to believe, irrespective of what they've been told, that they, in fact, are the second coming of Whitney Houston. Does this person go on to be successful? No, they do not, unless they're that William Ho guy who made that one song that people found funny because he was so bad. But generally speaking, they don't achieve success because they won't listen, because they're not humble. But anybody who is truly successful is on a more fundamental level, despite what they say, humble. If they weren't, they wouldn't have sought the counsel necessary to reach their level of success. They wouldn't have supplemented their weaknesses in certain aspects of their profession or pursuits of other kinds with somebody who performed those tasks better, which is necessary for success. Even if this amounts to your manager at work claiming credit for something that you have done in order to advance personally, that's still a kind of humility and that they have recognized that what you have produced is better than what they were capable of producing. However, it should also be said that while this mixture of pride and humility may allow for success in this life, that success is not going to transcend to the next life. Because Proverbs 16:5, everybody who's proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord, assuredly he will not be unpunished. So the unbelieving, braggadocious businessman misses the ultimate point of wisdom, which is not utilitarian. It is rather to know God and therefore to subdue creation by and consistent with divine knowledge in a manner that reflects the nature of our Creator. But he nevertheless has no choice but to honor the rules that God has established, and that means starting with humility. Now, I take the time to say all of this because this law of humility as it relates to wisdom needs to be understood by you to be incontrovertible. You need to know that there's no other way to wisdom so that you don't go on to seek one. Don't try to find a loophole here because there isn't a loophole. So please listen to me now. You will go nowhere and you will have nothing without wisdom. And you will have no wisdom without humility. And the reason why there's no way around this is that God is not going to allow men to circumvent humility because God hates, yes, God hates the prideful. Proverbs 6, 16 through 17. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him, and the first on the list there is haughty or prideful eyes. If nature were ungoverned by nature's God, as the pagans have it, then there would be, perhaps, more success for the arrogant. But since it is governed by God, as James says, God actively opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So there ain't no way of getting around this. It's a spiritual reality, binding upon all humanity. The prideful will not rise because the hand of God will hold them down. And the necessity of humility in acquiring all other wisdom is presupposed and implied in many places in Proverbs, but certainly in the first seven verses at the very open of the book. And we'll go through these now and we'll expound as we go. So Proverbs 1 Starting in verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction. Now, who would care to know? But the one who has the humility to recognize that they do not already know. To discern the sayings of understanding. Now, who desires to discern? But the one who's humble enough to acknowledge that personal discernment is presently lacking. 
Picking up in verse 3, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. To receive instruction requires that you make yourself a student. And a voluntary student is always one with the humility to understand their need of instruction. Verse 4, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge and discretion. Is it a humbling thing to admit that you are naive? That that speaks to your situation? Indeed it is. Is it humbling to acknowledge that in your youth you do not know? Of course it is. And notice what he says next. A wise man, going on in verse 5, will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. means that in order for a man to become wise, he must actually begin wise. If he doesn't begin wise, he's not going to become wise. Now, how can you begin wise? By beginning humble. That's the necessary wisdom that is foundational for all other wisdom. But while the businessman can be humble in one arena only and succeed in that arena at being business, if you want Solomon's wisdom and you want its greatest reward, which is the knowledge of the Holy One of chapter 30, then this requires wisdom of the natural kind and the moral kind, both spheres. And actually, for Solomon, there's no distinction between these two categories. They are melded together because, again, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or translated wisdom. It is a fundamentally spiritual enterprise, this pursuit of wisdom, and this takes us right into point number two, which is that the proverbial person is wise in the wisdom of God, and God's wisdom is righteousness. Again, the fear of the Lord, a spiritual disposition, is the beginning of knowledge, also translated wisdom. So a fear of, a reverence for, and a connection through Christ to God is the only way to be wise according to Solomon. So apart from Christ, you can indeed nibble around the edges of common grace. And that's what the businessman's doing. This subscribes to the philosophies of God without honoring God. But you're never going to know the fullness of this wisdom without Christ. Which is to say that you can use Solomon to fill your bank account But without Solomon's Christ, who is known by all who fear the Lord, you're always going to have an empty soul. And the fact that wisdom comes from God tells us, among much else, that if it is wise, it is also righteous because the Lord, Yahweh, is holy. Now, for the world, there is a bifurcation of wise and good, a distinction made. Not for the Christian. For the Christian, wise is good and good is godly. Wise is good, good is godly. Proverbs 2, 4 through 8. If you seek her wisdom as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright, the moral, the godly in character. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Again, a moral characteristic, guarding the paths of justice, and he preserves the way of his Godly ones, again, speaking to their morality and their character. Now, if you're like me, you like simple, concise definitions insofar as you're able to give them or receive them, depending upon what you're talking about. I have one for you for wisdom. It is godliness applied. Wisdom is godliness applied. That is how the Christian is to understand this, and you shouldn't accept any other definition 
than this, which isn't to say that it has to be worded exactly that way, but that's the fundamental concept. It's godliness applied. God is the only source of wisdom, period, in any category, irrespective who's practicing wisdom. This is true even in those who are practicing wisdom if they don't really understand what's happening. If they are blind squirrels happening upon nuts, you need to understand that that wisdom still fell from God's tree. And going back to unbelievers then applying wisdom to become financially successful, they didn't create the wisdom that made them successful. God did. What they have done is simply discover it. These principles of wisdom are all found in the book of Proverbs. Whether they read them there or they read them in some other book, if it is wisdom, it first derives from God, and they are just borrowing it whether they know it or not. My past life, because of what I did, I've read many, many books on wisdom. And there were some recurring themes. One of them was reaping and sowing even if they didn't call it by that name, as often some of them did, this concept was there. And why is this true? Why does a person who, want to be, who wants to be successful typically have to be philanthropic or generous? Why, if you want to have, can you not hoard? Well, because Proverbs 19:17, the one who's gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his good deed. Not just true of Christians, true of everyone to a degree. A law of the universe established by God. Although the blessings of being generous are especially great for Christians, they're not only experienced by us. I've also heard many secular business experts, pagan business experts, stress not taking advantage of the poor as a means of acquiring your wealth. From their perspective, they don't want to make the universe angry, they don't want to accrue bad karma. But the truth of why you cannot generally take advantage of the poor and thrive personally is Proverbs 22, 22 through 23. Don't rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. The unbeliever has perceived this opposition written into the stars or whatever. They don't know the source of this opposition, but they know that the opposition is real. That's the source. An unbeliever or a believer alike, you're not getting around it. The poor have a divine advocate. And so again, people who want to succeed may not know the one who made the rules, but because they are rules, if the unbeliever wants to be successful, they will play by them. And so must you, brother or sister Christian, But unlike them, you don't have to grab these truths from the ether and wonder what's based on transcendent truth versus what has crept in from unreliable sources. Because if you're a Christian, your Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 2.6. However, there is another category of knowledge. And I do not say wisdom, but I do say knowledge. And Proverbs speaks to this as well. In chapter 14, verse 12, there is a way which seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. And I have known that verse from the time I was a little child. And it's a good one to memorize. Now that certainly includes natural death when he says at the end of this knowledge is death. Solomon often speaks about avoiding the foolishness of say wayward women or violence as a means of prolonging your life literally. But he's also talking here about spiritual death because he speaks elsewhere about being drugged down to Sheol by wickedness. So 
death and then hell ultimately is the end of the world's knowledge or false wisdom. But recognize, Christian, that because this is the wisdom of God, when you practice it, you are participating in the divine and in the eternal, something vastly beyond this life and this existence. And that's what chapter 8 is all about. Proverbs 8, starting in verse 22, the Lord possessed me, speaking of wisdom, being personified at the beginning of his way, before his works of old, from everlasting, I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundaries so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. Now, in the very next verse, there's going to be a now therefore. In other words, because these things are true, the things that I just read to you, do this. So, before we get there, let's reflect on what has been said so that when it comes time for the doing, we understand why we are doing, and we are sure that we're doing in accordance with wisdom. And the reason here is that the wisdom that guides our actions is from everlasting. The wisdom that underlies the personal ethics that Solomon is teaching began before the creation of persons. The application did not begin until the creation of persons. But those primary categories, those immutable truths, they were always there. And they have not changed. And we drink from that same well, undiluted when we honor the Lord by obeying His commands. Again, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way, before His works of old. You know, the earth, as in the physical entity, the material celestial body, is in a constant state of flux. It's always changing. Human societies and civilizations obviously are as well, but wisdom isn't. Wisdom predates the earth. It predates mankind. Therefore, it does not change with them. Wisdom is God's possession, rooted in his immutable character, and in fact, as you can say that God is love, and Scripture does say this, you can also say that God is wisdom, and Scripture also says this, this is what is being stated in the concept of the Logos of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Wisdom personified in Proverbs 8 is literally personified in Jesus Christ. This connection between Proverbs 8 and John 1 has often been made and rightly made. So in practical terms, this means that in heeding the call of wisdom, as Solomon calls us all to, we become partakers of the same wisdom as all of the great patriarchs and matriarchs of our faith. How should you raise your children? Well, you should raise your children fundamentally the same way that Abraham raised Isaac, that Jesse raised David. How should we lead our wives? By subscribing to the same wisdom that gave birth to the world. And how should the ladies in this congregation submit to their husbands as Sarah submitted to Abraham? That is why Peter uses her as an example, as a paragon of biblical submission in 1 Peter 3. The world is prisoner to whatever sounds right. 
the prevailing wisdom of the day, whatever is being shaped and molded in the moment, it is not so for us. And that's really good news because you're being asked to trust in a profound way, to a profound degree. You're being asked to trust the Lord with your life, your family, your soul, and theirs. That's immense. To Proverbs 3, 5, trust the Lord as your singular hope with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding is an incredible ask. And generally, it's unwise to commit all your resources and place all your hopes upon one outcome. We have that saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's exactly, though, what you're being commanded to do by the Lord. All your eggs from this life and the next. Your future, your children's future, all your hopes rest squarely upon God and His Christ with all our hearts, says Proverbs 3, 5. What makes sense of this great faith? Well, it's the eternality, the transcendence of God's wisdom. And the fact that all our fathers in the faith and mothers, to the extent that they trusted in it, and therefore were practitioners of it, succeeded because of it. So, now therefore, continuing in verse 32, O sons, listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways, heed instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts, for he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, but he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. Our focus on God's wisdom as transcendent is critical to the whole issue. So wherever you go, whatever you do, always carry with you the substance of Proverbs 24.12. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? Eternal focus on an eternal God. Temporal consequences matter. But the eternal immutable principles matter more because the eternal immutable God whose nature they reflect matters most. Before we move off at this point, I'd like to highlight for you from this church's recent past some ways in which trusting in God's immutable wisdom has spared us from tremendous temporal consequences. And I mentioned this to Chris this morning. I didn't know all of what was going to happen. We as a church didn't know all of what was going to happen and the way that the data was going to shake down when the vaccine issue was put upon us. Were we blessed by holding to that position? Has that proven to be a good thing for people? Does the vaccine do what it's supposed to do? And doesn't it do quite a few things that it was never supposed to do? And this is short term. All that goes back, though, to relying upon transcendent, immutable wisdom. Christ is our head. He is our authority. Therefore, we don't have to surrender our bodies over to a government in that way. Husbands are the heads of their wives. Therefore, no government can tell their wives what to do in that kind of a way and usurp that role. Same thing with wearing masks and distancing in the congregation. It was a bit of a fog for a minute. And then the Lord broke through that and I just acknowledged the fact that I don't actually have the authority to do that. I don't have the authority to make anybody do that. That's not within the purview of pastoral authority. Neither does anybody else here. 
issue solved. But it's trusting in those eternal truths that led us out of that. And that's why so many churches did not do well, and that's to the glory of God, not to anybody here. But you have to understand that, that Satan thrives on chaos. And the reason that Satan thrives on chaos is because, as the great prophet Mike Tyson once said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And the society had a plan, and that plan was called the Constitution. And then they got punched in the face, and the Constitution got thrown in the garbage, which is where it remains now. That compact is broken. And Big Eva, evangelical churches, they at least in theory had a plan, and that plan was, in theory, the Bible. And then they got punched in the face, and they threw that plan out to their great detriment. They stopped holding services because the church for them was unessential, and now their numbers are forever down. They're not coming back. You can't fall into this trap. When chaos ensues, it is not the time to turn away from transcendent immutable principles. They have never been needed more. You've got to step back. You've got to breathe. And that's really hard when you're being told by your government that if you don't do certain things, you're going to lose your job. You're not going to be able to travel. But understand that that chaos is an agent of the devil designed to make you turn away from those transcendent truths. You must hold fast. And this isn't just true on a societal level. It's also true of your own family. You know and you understand the sex roles. You know and you understand what the Lord requires of you. And then some terrible thing happens with one of your children or some terrible thing happens in your marriage with somebody else that you love. And now all of a sudden you're entertaining possibilities that are totally contrary to the Word of God. Why? Because in the chaos you just want a solution. And you're willing to sacrifice truth in order to get to that solution. You're willing to sacrifice God's solution, which is rooted in immutable truths, in order to remediate the consequences in the here and now. Can't do that. And brother, this is going to primarily be you. When everybody else is panicking, when your wife is panicking, when your children are panicking, when there starts to be talk about turning away from the principles that are taught to us in Scripture and finding some other solution, you have to be the rock who rests upon the rock of your salvation. You have to be the one who says, no, we will not do that. We will not panic. We will trust and we will obey. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will not capitulate. For thousands of years, the people of God have been trusting in these eternal principles, and they have never failed us. You have this history. You have this heritage. You need to rely upon it. Point number three, or pillar number three, is that the proverbial man is a companion of the wise. The proverbial man or woman is a companion of the of the wise. In Christ, as we just noted, transcendent wisdom became mortal man, and through that man, that same transcendent wisdom has been imputed to men, and that wisdom is now shared between men. And if you want that same wisdom, you need to fellowship with such men. Again, per our last lesson, Proverbs eleven fourteen, where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in an abundance of counselors, there is victory. 
Proverbs 15:22. without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors they succeed. And obviously, once more, this occurs most for the Christian in the local church. That's where it's found most and practiced most to the greatest effect. But the opposite of wise making wise is also true, which is to say that if you want to stay stupid, hang out with moral morons. Proverbs 13, 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. 14, 7. Leave the presence of a fool, or you will not discern words of knowledge. 22, 24 through 26. Do not associate with a man given to anger, or go with a hot-tempered man, or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. Do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debts. And 24.1, do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. Your associations matter greatly. You ever been around a person who boasts about their ability to withstand strong negative influences? I have been around people like that. I don't make those boasts because I recognize of myself what I also recognize about you, which is that none of us are wise enough or strong enough to altogether withstand the evil influences of others. That's clear from Solomon's writings. That's clear from Solomon's life. For all his wisdom, he spent a whole lot of time with foreign kings, didn't he? And consistent with their examples, totally contrary to the word of God, he amassed an enormous harem. And that became his undoing. Because he let the foreign women influence him and he took on their religious practices. Now, a righteous man will, as a result of being indwelt by the Spirit, naturally gravitate towards other righteous men. This will happen to degree, if indeed he is righteous. This is why you will seek the local church as a new believer. You simply will. I don't accept the testimony of somebody who says that they've gotten converted but has no desire to be with the people of God. That doesn't work. On a fundamental level, this is who we are, and this is what the Spirit of God produces in us. It produces a desire for us to be with the other children that God has given birth to. But people of great wisdom will seek out righteous counselors with great intentionality within the body. And this, I believe, is what Pastor Dan was speaking about in CE Hour. You will find someone, and you will say, I need help on a personal level. I need help. There is not nearly enough of this sort of seeking happening in our churches. Somebody in this congregation came and said that they were surprised that other people were not seeking counsel from certain individuals, more so than they are. I was not surprised because I've been around for a really, really long time. It's just folly. If you have people that have gone through what you're going through and have applied Christ to your situations and circumstances vastly beyond what you're experiencing... Why would you not go to them? Because you lack the humility or because you lack the wherewithal? It's just not a priority to you. Wise young people, however, will seek out the wisdom of older saints because of Proverbs 16.31. A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. When you look at that gray hair, understand that that means something. We, we in our society place no value upon older people whatsoever. We have set them adrift on an iceberg and watched them float out into the sea, never to be seen 
or heard from again. They get in the way. And that's why we as a people are so collectively stupid. Because they possess the wisdom that we need, but we forsake them. And this is true even in secular settings. It is far more true when you're talking about the people of God. Somebody's got multiple decades of applying Christ to their life. Only a fool would discount that. And you are practically discounting that if you are not going to them actively and asking them to put that into you. Because I've never met a saint yet who was of that age and in that experience who said, no, get out of here. Not only is there not enough seeking of wise counsel in our churches there is also far too much of the opposite happening. Proverbs fifteen twelve: A scoffer does not love one who reproves him. He will not go to the wise. Proverbs 18, 1. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. That's why they're seeking to be alone. Because they don't want to hear it. They don't care. In absolutely every instance where there is an uninvolved or underinvolved member or attender of a church, this is why. A man who can't control his kids, for example, and doesn't want to have to start to change and engage in godly discipline of them, he starts showing up less so that the condition of his children isn't on display as often and the reality of his godless parenting will be less apparent to others. And therefore, he'll be less subject to accountability. Man who can't control his wife shows up less, so that that will be less apparent. People who have mutually horrendous marriages, same deal. False converts who are just playing a role, they find somewhere else to be. And this is also unfortunately true of the genuine believer who's become very enamored with a certain sin. As others have said, your repentance is going to drive you toward Christ and his people, or your sin is going to drive you away from Christ and his people. But the man or woman of God should desire excellence in every category. And excellence requires the help, the counsel, and the influence of others who are excellent. And this is also how we honor the spiritual investment that the Lord has made in others. God did that for them. God invested that capital in them. It honors the Lord when you recognize the investment that He's made in them by going to them and saying, give me some of that, please. Pillar number four, the proverbial man or woman is confident in the Lord because they know who they are as a child of God. Now, there are many Proverbs that speak to this, but here is just one very clear one. 14.26, in the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence and His children will have refuge. There are two statements that pertain to identity in that verse. Fear of the Lord ultimately identifies a group of individuals. It is a, a statement of identity. It is those who fear the Lord, and those who fear the Lord are those who are in Christ. But then you also have the statement about his children. Being a child of God is not first and foremost about what you do. It is reflected in what you do, but it's a matter of who you are. Now, every single problem that the modern church has with men not being men and women not being the women that God has made them to be runs right back to this issue. Either a failure to identify with Christ or a failure to understand and apply identity in Christ and thus be confident in the Lord as his children who fear him. 
Now, I want to step back for a moment. I want to engage in some of that observational sociological learning that I encouraged you to do last time, and soon you'll understand why. I want to identify some behaviors common to people that we've all witnessed, that some of us no doubt practice, and then understand what motivates these and how these relate to identity. Have you ever met the man that constantly begs for approval from his wife? And he does this often in front of other people, and that's why you've probably been privy to it. Honey, I did this. Tell me I did a good thing. Didn't I, didn't I do good? Was, wasn't I smart? Wasn't that a good decision? Tell me I did a good thing. For this fellow, marriage is just a strange and pathetic extension of the mother-son relationship. He who finds a wife indeed finds a good thing. Unfortunately, he did not find a wife so much as he did a second mother, and that is not a good thing. Does the same thing with friends, family members, children, church members. He is perpetually fishing for compliments, and there is certainly a female version of this as well. Though it seems to me, you can take this with a grain of salt because this is just my observation, that women seek validation more from peer groups than they do from individuals, which I think is probably because they are more relational by nature and thus more communal. Whereas men are more atomistic, so we seek it in individuals more so than we do groups. Women want to excel within a certain social paradigm, often within local churches, actually. And people like this often seek sympathy as well. Every little thing that happens to them, they keep bringing it up so that you can tell them how sorry you are for them. They want to talk about the work that they do in their particular vocation and how hard it is so that you can say, oh, yes, yes, you work very hard. You're such a hard worker, yes. They do this with being husbands and fathers and mothers and wives. I've had it so hard. Yes, you have. Yes, you have. And they are also often the fools who delight in airing their own opinions. Of Proverbs 18, too. The person's never met a conversation. They didn't desire to dominate so that they can impress others. Which, by the way, is not actually what ends up happening. Problem is, they are so lacking in self-awareness that they are the only ones that don't know that other people are not impressed. In the modern context, this person often seeks this approval via social media. And I say often, but it's pretty much always. They are defined by likes and thumbs-ups and shares. Now, what is this person really seeking? Well, he or she is seeking validation, obviously. But validation of what? Fundamentally. They are ultimately seeking validation of their identity. The person who exhibits these behaviors does not know who they are, so they need you to tell them, aren't I a good man? Tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I'm a good man. Aren't I a good mother? Tell me I'm a good mother. Tell me I'm a good mother. I don't know. I need you to affirm me. Aren't I smart? Aren't I a good provider? Aren't I a good caretaker? And ultimately, don't I have dignity and value and worth? Tell me I have dignity and value and worth because I don't know. That person's confidence is not in the Lord. It is in your approval because for him or her, you are God. So can a person in this state trust in the Lord with all their heart and lean not on their own understanding and in all their ways acknowledge Him and His wisdom? 
so that it will make their path straight. Of course they cannot. Instead, they are going to be the constant victim of some flatterer or another. They will sacrifice their life for the foolishness and greed of the flattering lips that Solomon so often warns about. For example, Proverbs 26:28, A lying tongue hates those it crushes and a flattering mouth works ruin. 29.5, a man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. But these kinds of people, they're going to step right into that net. Because what they should be getting from God, they are attempting instead to get from other mere men and women. And if you go out seeking for somebody to define you long enough, somebody's going to take you up on that offer. And they're going to manipulate your desire for their approval to their gain. In our day, most young people who come into our churches are some degree of this. Their parents have coddled them to the point of crippling them. They have no higher identity than child of so-and-so. So in terms of discipleship, you need to understand that this is baked into the cake. In the year 2022, you have to teach them what it means to be sons and daughters of God first. You have to teach them that God created them with dignity and responsibility. And because mankind originally fell, God has restored that dignity in Christ. You have to teach them that the self-esteem that they hear so much about as a concept is satanic. Because it's not self-esteem that makes the child of God strong and immovable. It's Christ-esteem. And it's not self-confidence, but Christ-confidence. So listen to me. If I've been describing you, stop pandering for the approval of men and women. It's sad and pathetic and sycophantic. If you do fall into this category, let me show you what a person sounds like when they understand their Christian identity. A practical statement here. Galatians 1, 6 through 10. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have now preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Here you go. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And you can guarantee that he would not have said what he just said about being accursed if you preach a different gospel. That was Paul. And in that situation, there was quite a contrast between him and Peter. Paul was not seeking the approval of men. Because while Peter had obviously come to some other primary identity than in Christ, Paul hadn't. And so Peter pandered to them while Paul didn't. So Christians, stop looking to people to tell you who you are. Did we form you in your mother's womb? Did we make the sons of men so that we might delight in them? Going back to Proverbs 8. Have you been made in our image? Do you seek to now be made in our image? through our approval and our shaping and our molding? Seek and find what you need in God. Be fulfilled in Him. 
Learn from your brothers and sisters what it is to be children of God, per the wisdom of God. And my friend, if you have the Spirit of God, it's going to be hard to do this. If you've been identifying in another way for a really, really long time, again, it's going to take Herculean levels of effort. But if you have the Spirit of God within you, you can absolutely do it. He's the one who moved over the surface of the waters. For Pete's sakes, you're a Christ man. You're a Christ woman. You're a son and daughter or daughter of the Most High God. Because Christ died for you, you absolutely have the power to live for Him. You can break those yokes. You can do it. And you can do it because you, in your identity, belong to the Lord. That's who you are. Not first and foremost as a worker or a mother or a father or a brother or a sister or a son or a daughter, but as a Christian. If you've been finding your primary identity in anything other than this, forsake it. It's idolatry. And be free. Be free to please the Lord. Be free to subscribe to His wisdom. Be freed from the approval of others as a primary means of vindicating your existence. If you don't know Christ, turn to Him today. And maybe that's the problem. Maybe that's the real issue. Maybe that's why you keep returning to people over and over and over again, seeking to find in them what cannot be found in them. Find it in Christ. Become a child of God by faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus and trusting Him to bear the wrath of God on your behalf. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these things. Lord, I pray that You'd help Your people apply them. We thank You for our glorious salvation. We thank You for the fact that we are freed by it to love people but we are freed from them as being our ultimate sources of approval. Lord, help us to love you, to honor you, and to seek favor in no one more than we seek favor in you. And we praise you and we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.